morning, Redeemer, for the folks that are here and folks that are joining us online and on live stream. I'm glad you've, you guys have been, um, been able to join us this morning. Um, Lindsay and I have been taking turns coming to church because our kids are not as compliant as some of y'all's wonderful kids that are sitting on their chairs. Uh, this will be almost an impossible task for Ezra, so we've decided to keep them home for now, but um, I don't want to just say it word of appreciation for my wife uh, who always t- picks up the slack or has to pick up the slack um, when uh, I have to prepare so I have the room to prepare and um, prepare for the sermon. So I want to just say a word of thank, uh, thank you for, uh, for her heart to serve and if you all see her, I'm sure some of you will see her tomorrow at the prayer night, please say a word of appreciation for her too. Um, this morning we are continuing in the book of Mark, um, like Shannon mentioned, or I believe the email mentioned too, we will take a break after this week and jump into another eight-week series. But today, uh, we are uh, going to spend um, time in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So go ahead and turn your Bibles there while I set up the context for today. Um, So Jesus is in the second half of his ministry, uh, if you all have been following along, uh, and he's making his way to Jerusalem where he will eventually be killed. Uh, and crucified, and so he has left Galilee and has come to Judea. Uh, he has not yet uh, he has not yet entered into Jerusalem, but step by step, and stage by stage, his uh, crucifixion is being set up as he's approaching this final scene. So along the way, he uh, stops and crowds gather, and he spends time teaching them, uh, teaching them on different topics as they gather and ask him questions. The Pharisees take these opportunities to kind of prod him and test him and try and build a case against him so they can make a case uh, to kill him, uh, which they eventually succeed. Uh, But here Mark is uh, recording uh, one of those incidents uh, in Mark chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 12, where Jesus is being tested by the Pharisees on the controversial topic of the time, uh, which was divorce. Okay. So, yay, nobody said about talking about divorce, but that's the passage we have in front of us. So, let's buckle up and dive in and see what Jesus has to say about this. Before I kind of uh, pray again for us, brief, uh, pray again for us, um, I just want to say a couple of caveats. As I was kind of thinking this through the sermon, um, I was kind of struggling with all of the pieces um, as we talk about a topic like this that I can't mention or uh, I, I don't have the time or the bandwidth to do or that the passage doesn't support, right? Um, and so divorce is obviously a big topic, marriage is a big topic, and uh, I just want to kind of mention up front that I'm not going to say everything there is to be, or that the Bible says about divorce and marriage uh, and remarriage, but rather what is Jesus trying to address here in this specific passage, in this specific context on the topic? And so that's kind of where my focus will be. And so there will be lots of things that are not said and uh, but just wanted to trying to be faithful to the text and trying to make sure y'all can get out of here at a reasonable time. So uh, you'll thank me later. So let me let me pray for us again before we dive into the passage. Father, we thank you again for this uh, time to gather to study your word. We thank you for your guidance and your grace and your mercy as we kind of think through these aspects of our life. Uh, we pray that as we look at the passage today, where you teach about marriage and divorce, pray that we, um, our hearts are open, and that our minds uh, are listening to you, 
that all of the words that are spoken this morning will be beneficial and will build up and not tear down, but that your spirit will be able to uh, use the words that are spoken from this passage today uh, for your glory and for your name alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's read Mark chapter 10, uh, and we'll kind of unpack what Jesus has to say about divorce and marriage. Mark writes uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we kind of unpack this passage. Believe it or not, this divorce was actually a very controversial topic uh, in Jesus' day. Right? And I think I found, that, I found that hard to believe, and I'm not sure about you. I would think more traditional societies kind of um, didn't have as prevalent uh, divorce as we have in the West. But apparently it was pretty common for divorce um, uh, in, in Jesus' day. And there were, the topic was controversial for, for one main reason, and that is because um, there were two schools of thought around what Moses meant when he gave the divorce law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. And we'll come back to that. But before we go into that, the two schools of thought, and I won't go into all the specific details. If you have a study Bible or footnotes, you'll probably see all of this laid out in there. But basically the controversy, or the crux of the controversy was um, surrounding the word uncleanness or indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. Let me read Deuteronomy 24, 1 just for reference. And Moses says uh, in Deuteronomy 24.1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So the debate among the rabbis was, what constitutes uncleanness or indecency? Okay? The one side uh, believed that indecency or uncleanness just involved anything and everything, from she didn't brush her hair to burn the toast to didn't care for the kids. Anything was involved. That's one school of thought. And the other school of thought was uncleanness specifically referred to uh, adultery. And so, if there was adultery, then there was reason for uh, then there was a good reason for uh, divorce to happen. And so that's kind of the uh, two sides that uh, were leading uh, views about divorce um, during Jesus' time. So the Pharisees, you know, Mark records here that they are trying to test him, right? And so the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to pick a side. 
apparently picking sides or needing to pick a side is not a modern problem, but apparently it's, you know, it's run through all of human history. But here Jesus is being asked to pick a side on the topic of divorce, right? And no matter what side he picked, he would upset somebody, right? And so, um, so the big question that the Pharisees wanted answered to, as it's recorded in verse 2, is what are the circumstances where divorce is lawful as per the law? Or what, when is divorce okay with God? And so they were looking for what are the boundaries, because Moses had given them some boundaries, and they had their interpretation of what those boundaries were. And G, the Pharisees were interested in where is Jesus going to draw his boundaries? Is he going to contradict Moses? Is he going to upset the current uh, political order? Is he, going to, um, is he going to upset the people that are gathered? And so Jesus kind of responds to them, uh, but does not really directly uh, address the question that they were looking for an answer for. Okay? So Jesus, in typical fashion, as we see him do throughout the passage, or throughout the Gospels, uh, flips the question around. Right? He, re- he receives the question from the uh, Pharisees about divorce and reorients them around the question of marriage. Okay? And this is, I think, very, as we see through the rest of the passage, I think this is kind of where the pa- what Mark is trying to teach us here or try to show us here from this passage. So instead of discussing divorce, he reorients the question and his audience around the question of marriage. What is God's view of marriage? He indirectly tells them, hey, you're, looking at the, you're as- asking the wrong question. Right? And he tells them that the only reason that they're concerned about what are the circumstances where I can divorce my wife, the only reason you're interested in that question is because, or that you think there's even an answer to that question, is because you do not understand God's design for marriage. What is God's view of marriage? And Jesus records this, or Jesus lays it out here in verses 6 through 9, and I want to read that again. It says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I mean, this is a very popular verse um, that you hear in weddings uh, and in you know, wedding um, you know, celebrations. But Jesus here in these three verses is giving his definitive answer about what is marriage. Hey, so let's unpack that, because I think that kind of will help us build out the rest of this uh, topic on divorce. So Jesus intentionally takes his audience to way before the law of Moses existed, because what was the reference point for the Pharisees? It was the, the law of Moses. That was where the controversy situated. So Jesus was like, let's go way back, way before there was marriage, way before there was divorce, way before there was the Mosaic law. What was God's original intention for marriage? And that's what he lays out here. Right? He, he takes them to the beginning and teaches his audience that when God designed marriage, he put a man and a woman together into this covenant called marriage so that they're no longer two, but one flesh. And think of it as just one thing, one object. Okay? And this one flesh that God has in his grace and infinite wisdom has designed and joined together cannot be separated out from that point forward anymore. 
So in other words, you, man, cannot unmake what God has made together. These two separate individuals of opposite genders before the marriage were two separate beings have now been transformed into this brand new thing that did not exist before the marriage. And Jesus in verse 9, a very popular verse again, says, Let man not be so arrogant to think that he has any idea on how to properly separate this unit that God has brought together. And so the audience is like, um, okay, wait, Jesus, you're dodging the question. That was not the question that we were, you were asked. You did not give us any reasons for divorce, what circumstances are applicable, when, when is divorce okay? And Jesus says, yep, to answer all of those questions, I did actually, in fact, answer the question, and in what circumstance is divorce a good idea? Jesus' answer here, who are faithful to the text, is none. There is no circumstance where breaking what God has joined together is a good idea. Let's kind of look what that means for us. Because what I think we often miss, and oftentimes the biblical audience missed here, is marriage was created by God and belongs to God. But divorce, on the other hand, belongs to man. It was not an original idea of God. It was created, as we see, because of the hardness of uh, man's heart, but it wasn't in God's original plan, as Jesus lays out here in this passage. I don't know about you, that's a terribly tough truth to swallow. Okay? And I'm the preacher, and I think this is very hard. Okay? Imagine the look of the faces of the religious leaders of the day and the disciples, by the way, and you will see everybody found this shocking. Right? And you'll see, you'll see I'll, I'll kind of point that out as we go through this passage. So if you think the statement, this statement is shocking to us as Westerners, imagine their um, shock. For them to be able, for them for Jesus to tell them that there was not only no easy way to divorce, but that there was no good reason to divorce, Jesus was blowing their minds. Right? And you see them trying to work out what that means for them. So if you take the teaching that Jesus gives here in the passage, Jesus is saying that the circumstances are irrelevant because irrespective of the circumstances where divorce, where we might think divorce is a good idea, the man and that woman has become one. So let me try and emphasize one point as we kind of go uh, one other aspect of this, uh, what this means for us. The oneness that Jesus talks about in this marriage um, is not something that is the goal of marriage, but rather it is the result of marriage. And, and that is important because oftentimes we think, or I used to think, what marriage meant is Lindsay and I get married and now we are going to try and become one flesh. That is not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches that when Lindsay and I got married, we have become one flesh. Now, we might try and live out that reality, but Jesus is saying, whether you want it or not, whether you strive for it or not, you too have become one through this covenant of marriage. Because God 
designed the institution of marriage to result in oneness. That is how God designed it. And so, marriage by its nature and its design is a type of arrangement that results in oneness, whether we want it or not, whether we like it or not. And so, like I mentioned before, this is tough truth to face up to, at least for most of us. And if what I just told you bothers you like it bothers me, then you understand what Jesus is trying to say. Okay? If you're a single person, and I'm just trying to imagine, I mean, I, was, I, was, I, I did teach in singles ministry for a little bit, and, and I can only imagine, as a single person listening to this, and you're thinking, man, I'm already afraid of commitment, right? And this whole concept of irreversible commitment sounds even more scary. If that's you, then you understand what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Man cannot undo what God has done, even if the circumstances are terrible and, the, and, it is, and it is with the best intentions, with the appropriate reasons, and the best methods, and the best counseling. No matter what options there are, we, because of the limitations we have as human beings, can, are not sufficient to undo what God has done. And, and I, I think if any of our ideas of marriage, whether it's cultural, you know, whether we, the, mar- the view of marriage we've grown up with, if any of that deviates from how God, Jesus defines it here, I don't think we understand how God designed it to be. Now, we might have oppositions to it, and that is, uh, that is fair. I have my own opposition to it. But I think we need to first approach the text to see what is Jesus teaching us on marriage. And what I think he's teaching on us is marriage is laid out here in this passage. Now I'll come back to what that means for us. What is, how do we respond to this? What do we need, what do I, where do I go from here? And we'll look at that uh, in a bit later on. But I want us to look at the response of the Pharisees because this was their original question. So we see that in uh, verse 4 and 5, again, the Pharisees were very bothered by this answer. And they would like Jesus to explain to them. And so in verses 4 and 5 says, They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And the audience like, well, Moses gave us some options. You didn't even give us those options. You didn't mention any of those options. But Jesus, instead of going back, oh, I forgot about that. Let me clarify what I think about marriage. No, Jesus doesn't do that. He doubles down. He clarifies for them that the only reason Moses gave them a concession or an exception was because of the hardness of their heart. It is because of the depravity and the sinfulness of their heart that Moses had to make a concession for them. So kind of just looking at a little bit of a cultural context, what was happening during the time of Moses was only men were allowed to uh, divorce their wives because of the law, and they were also the primary providers for their families. And so when a man decided to divorce his wife, he just oftentimes just left, left the family and the kids to fend for themselves. He left uh, to marry somebody else or kind of just to do his own thing. He didn't care what his uh, society thought. He didn't care what promises he's made. He didn't care what, the, what his family needed. He kind of just did what he wanted, what he felt like doing. And this was causing a lot of instability for women as, who bore the brunt of this bore the brunt of these, these actions. And oftentimes, um, 
the women were kind of left hanging. They had to go back and live with their families, but they could not get married again because people were suspicious about why this woman, uh, why her husband left her. And so it kind of caused all kinds of confusion. And so Moses, because out of mercy for the, for the women and for the society, passed this law because Moses, pay attention, could not change the hearts of men like Jesus could. And so he's like, this is my only option, is to give a law so that that at least frees the woman to, and puts her in a place and frees her from the suspicions of the society so they can go ahead and live their lives and not be blamed for the divorce. That's kind of the cultural context that Moses' law comes in. But divorce was not in the original plan of God. It was a concession to God's original design. Can you imagine what the Pharisees were thinking at the time? They were like, another check mark for why Jesus needs to die. Let's look at the disciples' response, because I think that's the other big group here. It, I found this interesting, too, because in verses 10 and 12, we see their, uh, their response. It says, And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I just want to make a, a clarification there. I just told you that only men could divorce women, but Mark kind of seems to record um, it going both ways. Uh, Mark's audience was more, uh, there was more than the Jewish people. So the Romans and the Greeks did have um, allowance for women to uh, divorce their husbands. Uh, it was rare, but it was allowed under their laws, but under the Jewish. So if you look at the Matthew uh, version of the story, you will see that um, that exception is that um, it's all directed towards the man. But I just want to make that clarification like uh, I just mentioned. So Jesus here uh, kind of looks at the disciples and says, the disciples are like, well, okay, we just heard you, what you just said. We just need more information. We think your view sounds extreme, right? And you'll notice this, and Mark doesn't capture all of those conversations, but if you go back to the uh, parallel passage in Matthew and in, Mar and in Luke, excuse me, uh, you, will say, you will see how distraught the disciples were. At one point, they even said, well, if that's what the marriage relationship is supposed to look like, it's better not to get married. And Jesus was like, yeah. And he makes room for singleness. And he talks about the eunuchs and the singleness and living celibate as part of God's, as a, an appropriate godly option. And I think Jesus does not, at the, for the fear of discouraging the disciples, go back and edit his view of marriage. He reorients them and sets the bar appropriately to where it needs to be. Okay, so what does our response need to be? What do we do with this hard truth? Okay, so I think our response to this truth or hard truth needs to be just the same as every hard truth in the Bible. Okay? We come, if any of, if any of what I just said leaves you in a panic, strikes you as impractical, condemning in some ways, judgmental, I agree with you. But this is the truth as I read it. And our response needs to be first to recognize we're inadequate. We're inadequate. And without God, we are inadequate to meet God's standard for marriage. That's just the truth of it. 
we cannot fulfill God's original plan or design for marriage on our own. And by the way, this is true for all of its truths, isn't it? I mean, think about the topic of anger where Jesus talks about anger, or excuse me, murder. Right? He says, Moses said, don't murder, you don't murder. Jesus says, I say, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Jesus is just like, 10x is what the law, what the bar is. Moses said, just, yeah, just don't kill anybody. Jesus is like, if you're angry at your brother, you are a murderer. Jesus does the same thing here. He says, Moses gave you this law, but this was God's original design. And oftentimes, we might, we might uh, look at this and be like, what do we need to do here? I think we start with our inadequacy. We're unable to meet it. But we can't stop there. Our inadequacy does not, it's not the end point. From our inadequacy, we need to look to our Savior and ask Him for grace to obey Him even in this area. Because God's grace is sufficient for us to obey Him even in marriage. So our only hope here is, as believers is to look to Jesus for grace to live out this truth. Whether you're in a happy marriage, unhappy marriage, whether you're single, whether you're unmarried, divorced, second marriage, remarried, whatever the case may be, our only hope as believers is to live out this truth by looking to Jesus for grace. Because remember, Jesus did not just bring truth. What else did he bring? He came with grace and truth. He reorients us to his true intention and puts truth in its right place and says, you cannot achieve this on your own. Look to me. And God has no plan. God's original intention was not for us to live, on it, live out this truth on our own. We might try to, but it was never in God's original plan when he put this in place for us to live out on our own. The biblical approach is always to see God's grace as something good and that we can only achieve those standards by trusting and relying on him. He wants to partner with us as we learn to walk this truth, as we learn to walk in our marriages. He never expects us to do, on our, do it on our own. Or rely on our feelings to sustain it, or rely on our communities to sustain it. He from the beginning intended for us to do our marriages with Him at the center. But that being said, in a fallen world, divorce happens. And oftentimes, people think that is their only option. I just want to mention before I go, God's forgiveness is available and made avail- readily available even to those failures. Where, no matter where you are, God is merciful and He's a loving God. And He's ever-present for us to find our worth and our identity in Him, not in our marriage status. Again, like I mentioned in the beginning, I'm not going to talk about all of the specifics. I, I, I recognize I'm leaving a lot of things open. Okay? Maybe we'll come back and touch on that some other day. I'm not going to talk about all the specifics, but I do want to touch briefly on the nature of divorce and what that means and why it, is, it, is, it goes against God's... I kind of mentioned why it goes against God's original design, but I just want to talk about 
what it means for us. The, um, we start with God's design for marriage. Only then can we see the mess that we are left with when we attempt divorce. Right? The, as I think about it, I don't think there's, unfortunately, I mean, I'm, this probably is your experience. If you talk to couples that have experienced the trauma of divorce, there's just no clean way to do divorce. Right? Two people who have become one flesh can separate and become two whole people again. What you end up with is a one thing ripped apart into two halves. Not two equal halves, not two whole halves, just ripped apart. And the best analogy I can think of uh, is to communicate, uh, to communicate the severity of it is amputation. Okay? And I recognize kids are here, and I'm squeamish about these things too, but I just want to briefly kind of uh, use that analogy to describe what I think happens. I think, um, I, I don't know if it was recent, I don't keep up with uh, all of the um, happenings in Hollywood, or really any happenings, but uh, I think I recently heard the term um, co conscious uncoupling, being referred to as divorce. Conscious uncoupling. Um, whatever fancy term you want to use, or whatever new term you want to use, we cannot if you have experienced divorce or lived and know people that have experienced divorce, can walk away thinking that this is anything less than an amputation, no matter what term you use. It is the severance of two conjoined souls, and what you end up with is not two single people, but rather two halves that have been painfully ripped apart, like a limb that is severed from a body. Divorce is more like an amputation rather than a surgical removal process. Now we recognize amputation is sometimes very necessary right, to save the life of the person involved. Right? Maybe there's an infection that is ravaging the body or one limb, and removing that limb saves that person's life. In the same way, I think we need to look at divorce as an absolute last resort, just like amputation is. It cannot and should not be, no matter how culturally acceptable it is, be our first go-to option. The sometime back, um, I was reading this uh, white paper article on. Um, it was written by a surgeon, uh, and he was recording the 200 years of surgery, or I think it was the anniversary of the 200th year of 200th year year of surgery. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Um, and he's writing this article kind of laying out how surgery used to be done back in the day and how it's done today. And for those that know me, I work in the healthcare field, but, I don't, but the extent of my healthcare uh, involvement is looking at healthcare data. But that's about the extent of it. Everything else makes me squeamish. So uh, let me try and describe this for you about what he says in this article just to kind of give you a little bit of a um, context. So he talks about how when surgery first started, right, there was no anesthesia. I mean, that itself is scary. Okay? I'm glad I didn't live back then. But the way they did it is they told the patient, you ready? Yep. Doctor, you ready? They strapped the patient down, tied a tourniquet, and just sawed the limb off while the patient was screaming. Okay? And then they figured out anesthesia really figured out how to use it in the context of surgery, how we could control the flow of anesthesia into the body. 
And the, uh, the author was talking about how once they recognized how to use anesthesia, it was actually an eerie feeling to be in an operating room because well, guess what? It was silent like, and very clean because the patient wasn't flailing. There was no noise. So much so if you actually go into an operating room today and you're actually awake, you notice that a lot of surgeons blast music in their operating rooms because they can't stand the silence. Okay. And the reason I bring that analogy up is um, while amputations might have gotten cleaner and safer and better ways to do it, it is still an amputation. And divorce, compared to back then, might have become more socially acceptable, might have become more um, legally uh, able to do, might have been uh, easy to conduct, or whatever the case may be. But I think as Christians and as believers, we have to recognize that it is an amputation if we, go, if we approach it with the way God sees marriage. And that nothing else, and no amount of legal work, no amount of paperwork can change any of that reality. Lastly, and we can end with this, why did God design marriage to be this way? Why did he have to make it this way? Well, there's two reasons I kind of just want to talk about. First, marriage is designed this way because it allows for our marriages to be a natural avenue for discipleship. Okay. When two beings become one, there's a space where two beings that bring their selfish desires, pride, ego, sinfulness, and bring it all together in one place. And then these two beings, husband and wife, have to work out their mess with each other. They have to rely on God. They have to die to self. They have to die to their own desires for the sake of their spouse. This is an automatic or, or an inbuilt sanctification program an inbuilt a discipleship practice field where you get to love your neighbor, the closest person you are to physically, in this context. It provides you multiple opportunities to be sanctified. Sanctified from our pride, our selfishness, just to name two prominent things that most couples see in their marriages. And the difficult and areas of conflict in our marriage are not reasons for us to look for ways to fix our spouse, find a way out, but rather those are areas where God expects us to, again, look to Him for grace and pray for our spouses as we ourselves are changed by the Holy Spirit. We trust God to change our spouse. And the promise to stay together and become, continue to live out this reality of oneness gives us the space for us to love and serve each other. I don't know about your marriage, but I know in mine, I have plenty of opportunities where I'm faced with my wants and desires on one hand and Lindsay's needs and desires on the other hand, where I have to constantly die to my own and serve her. And Lindsay has those same opportunities. And if you've been married for longer than one second, you know this, is, this to be true. And we constantly, as we pursue Jesus, we also learn to pursue each other and the love of Christ that lives in our lives flows out, and out of that love, we learn to love our spouses in spite of our sinfulness. So it is an inbuilt discipleship practice field or sanctification program. 
So here's two questions for, kind of, for us to kind of think about this week. What are opportunities that you, where are opportunities that you can serve your spouse? When is the last time you asked them that question? Right? How can I serve my spouse? Maybe it's a good time this week to take, get down, maybe a date night or even as you guys pass each other, ask them. Okay? And just listen. Listen. Because maybe it's a good time to look at, get a reset and get some answers around this question. Second, what about the frustrations that we have with our spouses? Because I know Lindsay doesn't have any with me, but I know a lot of us have with our spouses, frustrations, right? Do we take them to Jesus and ask Him for grace on how to approach them? Again, this is not... Frustrations in your marriage, frustrations with your spouse are not deviations from the plan. They are, they are inbuilt. As sinful people that are coming together, that have become one, this is just inevitable. And so God expects us to rely on Him again and to trust Him for us to work out these frustrations. Because at the end of the day, you might not like the answers as you trust God with these, but God designed this arrangement, and He is very interested in your marriage. Not just marriage as in gen- generic, but rather you as, as spouses, husband and wife. He is very interested in your marriage and who you are becoming. That brings me to the second point. I think marriage was designed this way because it is a reflection or a signpost that points to God. It is a reflection. Marriage, as God designed it, is a reflection of our covenant relationship as believers with God. We who are joined to Christ through the Holy Spirit are being prepared as His bride. This, this idea of bride, Christ, um, is you know, throughout Scripture. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very prominent symbol and metaphor that is used. And, uh, and we are portrayed as the bri- and Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom in this relationship, and God reveals himself to be a faithful, loving, and committed to a covenant union with his church, which is the bride. And it is composed of all who believe in Jesus Christ and have accepted his atoning grace and gift of salvation. So when we live our marriage and uh, our marriage God's way, we actually become signposts that point back to God that bring glory to God, that each couple that gets married God's way is another signpost for God that points back to God. And God wanted us to be, our marriages to be signposts that point back to Him. Just like our lives as believers and how we love our neighbors is supposed to point back to God, how we love our spouses and how we conduct our marriages is meant to be a reflection of God and the love that He has for His church. In Scripture, and this, again, is some beautiful parts of Scripture, promises a final reunion with Jesus Christ, His bride, the church, and His bride, the church. When Christ returns, as we see in the Bible, He will celebrate with His bride in a wedding ceremony where the two will be united forever, where all tears, all the pain, all the suffering will be over, and we as the bride will be joined to our bridegroom. Just Jesus. And as we prepare for the second coming of Jesus, we are in faith, in fact, are preparing for the biggest and happiest wedding banquet. This is our hope as believers. We await our Savior as we continue to trust in Him. Trust in Him to obey Him as believers, as disciples, as spouses, 
and be faithful to Him, whether it is in our marriage or in our own lives. We trust in Him for grace for our lives, especially our marriages. And lastly, as, as, we, as with anything that brings glory to God, the devil is interested in it too. Right? Uh, Shannon just mentioned that we're starting a new series next week on spiritual warfare. If marriage is not one of the core areas that the enemy has been attacking, has been attacking for a while, then I don't know what is. It is something that has constantly been an attack, whether it is within the church or even outside the church. And so it's something that I want us to, again, think of as a practical takeaway, is because your marriage brings glory to God and is a signpost for God's presence, the enemy is very interested in planting seeds of lies, seeds of frustration, seeds of division. So don't be surprised when there are difficulties in our marriages. Know that the devil is actively looking to undermine it because he is afraid of its potential to bring glory to God. So whether you're in the middle of a very good marriage season or a difficult one, considering divorce, or in a second marriage, whatever, singleness, wherever you are, let's pray. Let's pray for our marriages. Let's tend to it regularly. Let it not die at the altar of our jobs, our hobbies, our kids, our ministry, or whatever the case may be. Let's tend to it. Let's not take it for granted because it is a critical way God gets glory. And it is a critical way that God uh, is, is interested in building up the church. That, I think, is pretty much all I have. And I know there's lots of outstanding questions on this topic. And I, I'm sorry I didn't get, get, to, get to all of it. But this is pretty much all I've had on divorce. So if you have questions, Shannon will be at the back to answer any and all questions. And you can send him the emails. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for all the folks that are gathered here. Pray for all the marriages at Redeemer. The ones that are thriving and the ones that are struggling. The newlyweds, the folks that have been married for a long time. I pray that you remind each married person that you are present with them, that you love them unconditionally. I pray for your blessings on each of them. I pray for the single folks among us, that you will plant the seeds of this truth in their lives so that it produces fruit if marriage is in their future. Finally, I want to pray for the folks that have gone through the trauma of divorce. Pray that you heal the pain and continue to work in their lives and continue to heal the trauma. Because I know this truth was hard to deliver, but I can only imagine how hard it is to receive. But Father, I pray that you remind each and every person listening to these words, remind them that your arms are wide open for them, that you love them unconditionally nonetheless, no matter what the failures, no matter what the downfalls, no matter what state they're in, that they are loved unconditionally. Irrespective of the past, you've made a way for all of us to find hope and to rest in your love, and I thank you for that, Jesus. I pray for the folks that might be considering whether they should leave their marriage or, whether they're, or if they're in sin. I pray that you would convict them, lead them to repentance, so they might learn to live in the plan you have for them, in the blessings that you have for them. I pray that for the marriages here at Redeemer, 
once again. I pray that it is a signpost and brings glory to you, even, even as we as a church strive to celebrate you and bring you glory in this community. Pray that our marriages, even as we go back to our workplaces, our homes, our communities, our schools, that it brings you abundant glory. Thank you for this truth. As hard as it is, we, you know what is best for us. Prepare us as your bride so that each of our hearts will be longing and waiting for your return, that we might say, come, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in the sweet and loving name of Jesus. Amen.